My name is Luke, and I am a Grateful Al-Anon member, and I go to a, I belong to a group that called, uh, uh, it's at the East Brainerd, uh, excuse me, it's at the East Brainerd Club at the intersection of East Brainerd Road and Graysville Road. And so the New Beginnings family group would welcome you anytime you want to come to Chattanooga. 7.30, and we are on the web, so it should be easy to find us. I find them. Uh, I'm going to just try to jump in this. The sooner I'm finished, the better we can get on with the rest of the evening. Uh, I just want to start out by setting the right framework. I have changed my mind. I have changed my mind about almost everything I have ever believed. I was raised the way I was raised, and I believed what they told me to believe, and it was in a custom, in accordance with the times in which I lived, and I have found that what I believed almost worked. But it had its problems. Um, my family background is uh, uh, my mom lived in, was raised in Greenville, South Carolina, and her family was alcoholic. They were very poor. Uh, she had sisters and brothers. The brothers pretty much all became alcoholics, and the girls kind of banded together and married alcoholics, so it just kind of kept everything together. (laughs) The kids were raised so that the men knew they were supposed to be alcoholics, that's what guys do, and the girls were supposed to take care of them when they came home, and that's what they did. And my mother, uh, she, uh, her dad was a particularly mean drunk. Uh, when he would get drunk, he would get violent. And one time something happened. I don't know what it was. I wasn't even born yet, but they told me about it. And he beat her with a fire poker until she was bedridden. That's just not acceptable. But that's the way she grew up, and she didn't have any choice in it. When she was in the eighth grade, they pulled her out of school and put her to work in a cotton mill. And... The first man that came along that would take her and marry her, she grabbed that up to get out of that family. She was looking for a place to hide, to run away to. And it turned out he was an alcoholic. Don't we pick them consistently? She was raised, and she understood the nature and dynamic of that family, and intuitively she married another person. But this one would be different. She had three children and found out that she just couldn't take it anymore, so she divorced. And back in the 40s and 50s, a divorce was a very challenging thing to go through if you were a female. And she married my dad. Uh, they, They met kind of... I asked him one time, I said, how did you ever meet Mom? He said, oh, I was in Greenville, South Carolina, on furlough, and he said, I had to get gas somewhere, and when I pulled in, she pumped the gas. <laughs> That's how their romance started. She was happy to run across someone that didn't drink, but she didn't know those kind of thoughts. She just recognized he was another chance. Well, out of that marriage, uh, there were three kids. Let me say this about my dad. My dad was so different from her. He was raised in Kansas. They lived in a town. They called it a town three blocks wide and six blocks long. There was one school, and when when you got to the eighth grade, that's when you graduated. 
and the whole county would come together so there'd be enough people for the ceremony. Two different worlds. He had no exposure whatsoever to alcohol. Um, they got married. I, was, I wasn't there for the ceremony. <laughs> and I was the firstborn. Dad still was still in the military, so she became a uh, soldier's wife. I was the firstborn. There were two other sons born after that. And we're, I, I never knew a different life than being a military kid. Every two years, we'd move. So every friend I ever had, you had to pick one friend quick. You had to make sure that was something he, that other person was going to be a friend to you, and then in two years, you're going to say goodbye. My earliest memory I have of anything is being in Alaska, stepping outside of the uh, building that we lived in into the breezeway, and it was wintertime, and I could see over the top of the snow, and I waved goodbye to Mitzi because it was time for me to go, and she was my, my friend. And I went to the next base, and I found one person, and that was my best friend. And we would be fresh best friends for a couple of years, and we'd say goodbye. So Mom's family and my dad's family were radically different, but they married, and they had three kids, and those three kids were all military kids. The reason I make that point is it was the only life I knew. And my two other brothers were pretty well sane. They seemed to be normal. I still think they're kind of strange, but they aren't pretty much normal. I, on the other hand, was a problem. I was not an easy kid to have. Uh, when we, I lived in... Uh, my dad, we were in Nebraska, that's where I was born. Dad often mentioned to me that the reason he took me home is I was the only child in the ward. <laughs> born in Nebraska, went to Alaska, Minnesota, Arizona, Texas. Uh, when we were in Minnesota, just to give you an idea what my poor mom and dad went through, uh, I would just do things. I was up in a haymow one time, and the little neighbor girl, we had three families lived on that farm. We were up in the hay mall. I was about eight years old, and I wanted to show her how Tarzan could swing on a rope. So I grabbed a piece of twine, and we were over by the door, and I just let out a yell to impress her, and I grabbed that twine, and I went out the door. Well, it was twine. And I was screaming on my way down till I hit the ground. And unfortunately, they had piled a bunch of steel car rims down there, and I landed in the rims. And so every place there was an edge, there was a different angle on an arm. Uh, I knew I was in trouble. I got up. They put it in. The only thing I remember from it was the fall and then being in the hospital bed with a picture being taken. Look, Ma, both arms. That's it. Why would I tell you that story? It's because I became a problem child, and I don't even know why. But I would do crazy things, and I just things happened to me. One time I was walking through a cockleburr patch. Do you know what that is, cockleburrs? And the kid in front of me, I don't know what happened. I turned around for a minute, and the kid said, Hey, Lou, turn around. And when he did, he let go of a branch of cockleburrs and just hit me in the face, and so I couldn't see. So they took me to a doctor, and they pulled the piece, little bits of cockleburr out, 
and nobody thought anything about it. I didn't think anything about it. It's just the way things were. Uh, uh, I'll tell you another example of just how crazy I could be. I decided one day, it was a dairy farm that we lived on, I decided I was going to tie a cow's tail in a knot. (laughs) That is a task. (laughs) They don't bend. I grabbed that tail and that cow kicked me so hard. Did you know a cow can kick forward and backwards? It didn't matter where I was, that cow had me. So that's the kind of kid that I was, and that is told to you so you'll know my mom and dad had their hands full. Um, When we left Minnesota, we went to a place called Waco, Texas. And it's right in the middle of the state. And uh, we, we, lived, uh, we lived in a little town outside of Waco called Belmead. And the reason I bring this up is while I was there, uh, I continued to be the problem child that I was. And Dad later on, Dad later on told me, he said, Son, there were a lot of times I wish I could have put you back where you came from. And he meant it. I was a problem child. I need you to know what a challenging kid I was. Because my parents weren't bad, but they were doing the best they could, and they did not know what to do about me. While I was in Waco, I had a... I can't explain this. I'm going to just say it because it's my story. I was standing in the backyard, and all of a sudden, as I stood there, it came to my mind that I was going to become a minister and that I would never have children. Crystal clear, I didn't think anything about it. That's the way it was. And I just went on with my, just didn't think about it. But I never questioned that that was true for me. And um, while we lived in Waco, I was getting to that age where girls became kind of interesting. And I run across this one girl at school who was a couple of years older, and she was nice to me. And I was really interested in her. It turns out her dad was a minister. And for me to see her, I had to go to church with her. Well, I could do that. Give me a break. That's easy. And I went to church. Um, After I had been going there for a while, I kind of lost interest in her, but I started hearing what they were telling me, and I bought into their line of thinking. Now, They were a very strict group. They believed they were the only ones right among all the religions. And and if you were going to be saved, there were very specific requirements that you had to meet. And if you didn't meet all of them, you didn't make it into the state of salvation. Well, they told me that I met those requirements, and I was so relieved. But nothing inside me changed. I was still the kid that was in Minnesota. I'm still the kid that was in Waco. I was still the kid before I met her. But they assured me that I had met their qualifications. So I finally belonged to a group, and I was committed. Um, I went to a seminary. Once I got out of high school, I went to Waco. uh, I went to um, Houston, Texas. And... I graduated 
from seminary. And while I was in seminary, I always kept hearing them explain what I was supposed to believe, but I couldn't ever figure out how to make it work because my insides didn't match my outsides. I was being good on the outside, but inside there was something that just wasn't matching up. And that's important for me because I need my insides to match my outsides. I don't want to look good on the surface and be in just miserable inside. So uh, I, I, I knew I needed to get married. I kept finding the parishioners in the church that I had to look really good, and I needed to quit looking at them. I, lust is lust. You know, look at it any way you want. And so uh, I wanted to get married, and in that faith, you had to marry someone in your faith. I didn't know anybody else in my faith except the people that were there in my church, and they were all married. So I called up somebody I had met at seminary, and I said, you know, I'm pastoring a church. I need a wife. Would you like to get married? I know you think that might be strange. But the, the number of prospects was pretty slim. Not just for me, but for them, too. I mean, we, we were so thinly scattered across the country. And so we got married. And, uh, well, I called her, and she said yes. And I went... I, I mean, I didn't see her until I married her, but I went to Houston, Texas and got married and came home. And, and I thought, this is going to solve all my problems about girls and these wanting to look at other women. And I just, because I didn't feel clean about doing that. And, um, and you know, you may think I sound kind of strange here, but, but I was strange. As a pastor, you, you might be shocked to, to realize this, but um, strange things happened to me while I was a pastor. One of those was, one night I was in bed and I was asleep and the phone rang and, and uh, uh, somebody was on the phone and said they needed to be baptized that night. It was like, I don't know, 12 o'clock? One, so I said, okay. So the, wife, the woman I had married and I got up, we went over to the church and they brought this woman in who was a sizable girl, and uh, she was very disabled, couldn't hardly walk and move, but she wanted to be baptized right then, so said, fine. We had a tank um, about like this table, wasn't quite that long, and we had it filled with water. It was like an old cow tank, but it, and we had wood around it with an ice, it dressed it up. So we finally got her in there, and she was a handful. And I told her, I said, now, I'm going to hold your, and you grab my hand, and I grab your wrist, and we're going to go over, excuse me, and I'm going to put you under the water, and then we're going to come back up. In our faith, you had to go under the water. Nose and all. So we went over. What I hadn't realized was the way we had built this, I could stand outside the tank so I didn't get all wet, and they could be inside the tank. And we hadn't had a baptism in a long time, so the water had evaporated. And so when I started over, I had to keep going more and further and further. And finally, I, I, I just pitched in on top of her. And I was jackknifed over that thing, and my feet were off the floor. 
and she wouldn't let go. <laughs> I tried to get my feet back down. Finally, the woman I was married to at 90-something pounds ran up, leaped on the back of my legs, and tried to push them to the floor. We started on her way up, but we didn't make it. She's still hanging on, barely under the water, barely out of the water. Yes, yes. Oh, my God. Finally, my wife pushed one more time. I got my feet down on the floor, and we got her up. And I said, how are you? She says, I've never felt so close to God. (laughs) That's a real story. A real story. Um, we were going to have Easter. You know how important Easter is with a lot of our religious groups, and it was for ours. And we had these old wooden pews with curved seats, and you know, with no cushions, just nice curved seat on the bottom, nice arch to the back. And uh, I wanted that place to look good for Easter, so I had gone and bought a case of spray cans of Pledge, and I polished up the pews. <laughs> They look good. That church happened that Sunday morning. They came in, they sat down, and I was up exhorting. And they, they were kind of going up and down like this. Uh, I could not imagine what was going on. It was like watching waves on the, on the water. So I finished up, as, and, and as they got up and went out into the aisle and marched out, the backs of their suits and clothes were shiny. So, and by the way, if you think that's crazy, when I finally, I I finally just gave up on religion and and, and I left. Um, In 1979, I decided I did not have what it took to be a believer. And if you don't believe it, you just, it will wear you down. And I just could not make it work for me. So I just faced it. I changed my mind. I said, I'm out of here. Um, uh, when I was in seminary, I'll give you one more story just to let you know I am consistently odd. We did a thing called foot washing. Anybody know what that means? And in seminary, they'd have someone sit across from me. I'd wash their feet, and then they would wash my feet. That was a sign of practicing humility, and I didn't like one bit of it. So, this big guy was over there with big feet. I said, I'm going to really wash his feet. So I got a hold of his big old ankle, and I started running my finger between his toes. I mean, I get, and he started hooping and hollering and yelling, and they thought the spirit was on him. And, uh, I knew it wasn't the spirit. I finally resigned as a pastor, and when I left, I was pretty, I was pretty bitter. I decided I had failed in every way as a Christian. I had failed in every way as a pastor. I had failed in every way as a believer. So uh, I decided to go on with my life, and I just quit. Now, this is the, when I quit, I disappeared from my family. My dad didn't know where I went. My mom didn't know where I went. My brothers didn't know where I went. For five years, I just disappeared. And at the end of about five years of being gone, I decided one day I'd go see my dad. 
So I drove from Chattanooga, where I had gone to when I left Spartanburg, South Carolina. I drove all the way up to uh, Greenville and knocked on the door. My dad had not heard from me in five years. And I stood there, knocked on the door, and he opened the door, and he looked at me. And I said, hi, Dad. I said, well, hi, Louie. And he just stood there. I said, can I come in? He said, do you want to? Five years, I had not made one contact with that man. And in, he said, do you want to come in? If, if, you're welcome if you want to. But if you don't want to come here, you're not welcome here. That was the message I got. And I said, yes, I want to come in. And he let me in. That's an important story for me because I'm going to tell you, I was so broken with my relationship with my dad that he didn't really want me back. But I was his son, and he let me in. Um, I met a girl while I was at that in Chattanooga, Tennessee, uh, which she interviewed for a job. She was really good to look at. And she was married, but, you know, you got to deal with stuff, right? And so I had no chance to ask her out. But I finally left that company, went to California, got a job with a really large company out there. And somebody called me and said, did you know that woman is no longer married? She's left that marriage she was in. I said, really? So I got on a plane and I flew to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I wanted, I wanted to try to see if I could persuade her to go on a date. And she agreed to, so we got in. I borrowed somebody's Jeep. And I didn't realize it was full of mosquitoes. You know, it was, it was a wagoneer of some kind, and that, that, they, they just ate us alive. It wasn't the best date. However, she didn't run away, and I, I really, she was classy. She was everything I kind of thought I would like to have in a wife. And uh, one day I, when I was telling her, I told her I was coming in for Christmas. I was still in California. She still lived in Chattanooga. Uh, I got I got to the airport in Chattanooga, and she was standing down at the end of the ca- causeway, and she was wet all the way down from her neck down, and she was standing there shaking like this because it was so cold. And I asked her, I said, what happened? She said, well, I had had a little wine, and I ran late, and and I was coming in the back way to the airport, and there was a puddle, and I got stuck in the puddle, and so I just waited on across. Well, I said, we gotta go fix this thing, so let's go take a look, and we went out, and we found her car, the headlights were on, under the water. She had the door open, and she had waded across the water. Well, I thought my job was to fix it because that was what I do for someone I care about. So I did everything I could to be helpful. I asked her to marry me. That was, I, 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 I wanted to get married and I wanted to marry her. And she said yes. Well, we, we got married. By the way, I figured out by then she liked wine. So I got a chance to take her down to the Pacific Dining Car in Los Angeles, California. We got a great steak, blue cheese on top of it, a great salad, and two bottles of wine. And I proposed to her. 
with two bottles of wine, she got to yes. <laughs> and for me, that was great. I was happy. We got married, and for five years, for five years, we did really well together. However, one of the things that I did know is just like I, with my mother, had been sort of programmed to be the way her family expected people to be, and just like I had been programmed the way that I thought the church was supposed to have me be programmed, and I got out of that, I found that I kept believing what other people told me, not what I had personally experienced. And so my point being is that I... I wanted to be married to her, and I wanted her to not drink, and I wanted me to be the kind of husband that I thought I could be, but it was becoming more and more complicated. But we did get married. Uh, we, we made a point to go to a church so far away from where we lived, we knew that church would never expect us back. That was a requirement for me. And so do you kind of hear this trend in here that I'm having a hard time relating to life? Do you kind of hear this thing that I have some broken thinking going on in my head? Do you hear this that I'm not really winning even if I'm getting promotions and even if I have a job? I'm not connecting. And my mind was just riddled with all these old experiences I had that I treated as though they were true, correct, and the way life worked. And they weren't. I was just wrong. Uh... If you thought I was crazy as a pastor, one time my wife and I were out on a golf course having a good time. We, well, we were still drinking. Uh, I'd have a drink, she'd have a bottle, and it made a great team. And we had pulled into at the turn, and uh, after the first nine holes, we pulled in, and I would just I zipped right in, and I stopped the cart, and I whirled the wheel, and I backed right up, and I hit something. And, well, I just rolled back forward, and I just gave him more gas. About three tries, I finally got over it. It turned out it was my wife. <laughs> and uh, people inside that were looking through the windows came running out, and they were aghast. Well, I looked around, and I was pretty aghast, too. And they, they finally pulled her out. She had t- tread marks on her, you know. It just I'd gone over her. And <laughs> it gets worse, So the next day, they, I put ice on her, and she, was, oh, she seemed to survive. So the next day, we're out on the course again. And she has, she's down there about 60 feet, maybe 100 feet from me. And she, in those days, we wore metal cleats on the bottom of our golf shoes. And she's on the concrete, and she's had a drink or two, and she's, she slips and she falls. Well, that's my wife. So I gave it all the gas that little cart had, and I was heading down that way to save her. And people on the carts, uh, on the course started screaming, stop him, stop him, he's trying to kill her. <laughs> I know you don't believe that's a true story. But my entire life has just been chunks of craziness. I did not know how to get myself straightened out. I really didn't know how to do it. Uh, and I wish I could tell you a better story than that, but that's, that's my story. Um, so we, we would have... Uh, we, we had a nice place in, in Marina del Rey that we lived in, and I had found along the way that if, as long as I provided her with alcohol, she was pretty happy, and as long as she was drinking, I was pretty happy. It's just that it got to where she had to drink so much more that things weren't being very... It, it was just deteriorating. 
And uh, she went into treatment, and she got out of treatment, and it didn't work. So we finally decided to go to a, to a therapist. And we went to the therapist, and we went there for a while, and I was pretty sure the therapist was going to be able to help me figure out to get her well. And finally the therapist looked at us and said, Lady, you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And Mr., you need to go to Al-Anon. You're as sick as she is. So I thought, well, I can handle this. So I made sure she knew where the AA program was, uh, meetings were at, and I made sure she went, and I sat right there beside her. <laughs> she preferred that I would leave her alone and get on back to my own program. Believe it or not, she finally... Uh, what happened was we finally moved back to Chattanooga. We, we, we left California, came back to Chattanooga, I started going to Al-Anon in Chattanooga, and uh, so somewhere along the line, she just got sober. She quit drinking, and, and that was fine. Uh, I was happy about that. And she, for five years, she was in a stage of what I'd call sodriety. She, she wasn't sober, but she was in sodriety. And, uh, and I was so relieved because she wasn't drinking everything else I could cope with. Uh, and I didn't have to deal with the God thing either, because in 12-step life, God keeps showing up as, a, as an idea that seems to be important. And uh, uh, finally, after about five years, she just went, she went back out. She just said those were the most miserable five years of her life because she stayed sober for me. She did not get sober for her. And she was back off and running. And that's when I decided I needed to really take a hard look at Al-Anon and try to do something about my life. Uh, I did go to Al-Anon, and Al-Anon started teaching me about detachment, teaching me about boundaries, teaching me that there was a different way to think and behave. And she would drink until she had passed out. She was laying in bed one night, and I finally went to her, and I said, I said, I just want you to know, I think I'm part of the problem I keep fixing things for you, and it makes it worse. I'm not going to do anything if it has anything to do with alcohol. And she looked at me, and she said, Huh. Well, ten years it had been anything I said I didn't back up. This time I actually didn't do anything. She came, uh, I don't know if it was two or three days later or a week later, she came to the uh, door of the bedroom. She said, Louie, would, would you take me to a treatment center? She had been to several in the past. I said, I've told her I'm detaching. I'm detaching. But she said, would you take me? I don't think I can drive. I said, all right, I'll take you. I took her to the car. I said, where do you want to go? She said, you just pick it. I've been to almost every place here. You just pick it. I said, I'm not picking. It's not my sobriety anymore. I'm not meddling with you anymore. I'm not sane enough to help out here. So she said, all right, let's take me to this one over here. I took her, and she's... Uh, we got there and she said, would you help me in? I said, no. If it has anything to do with alcohol, I'm just not going to help. And she said, would you go in and ask the nurses to come out and help me in? I said, I'll do that. They came out and they helped her in. They were filling out the paperwork. They asked me if I would sign the paperwork. I said, no. They had told me I needed to detach. And I did. I detached with an axe. <laughs> I did not know how to detach with love. It never dawned on me. So they finally got her to scribble a, a signature on it, and they said, okay, now 
They said, Lou, we're going to put her in your car, but she's not yours anymore. You're going to drive her down to Birmingham, Alabama to this address, and you don't take her home. You just take her down there and put her into treatment. So I did just exactly that, and I drove away. And that was the first time probably in six months that I went home and went to bed and went to sleep really well because I knew she wasn't drinking. They had her. I didn't go back to see her until they told me to come down. She stayed there. She got sober. She has stayed sober ever since, and it was hard. But she decided she wanted to be sober, and it was her choice. Before this, I think she was trying to be sober because she wanted to stay in the marriage. It doesn't really seem to work. I don't know how sober she is today. I don't count the years. I'm looking forward to a countdown. That's how I figure out how many years she's been sober. And because it's only one day at a time. It's only if she wants to be sober today. That's when I put the focus on me. I went through all that stuff in my childhood, learning the rules of life from my mother, learning the rules of life from my dad, and totally confused, trying to do it on my own and failing at every step. And finally, I just decided I was going to give Alan on a real shot. And I'd like to share with you some of the things that have happened to me because I ended up in Al-Anon. I am not the easiest Al-Anoner you'll ever run across. I don't run over people with cars anymore. And I don't, I don't grab twine and hay malls either. I have learned some basic lessons of survival. But I needed to learn how to change on the inside for Lou. And one of the things that uh, really made such a difference for me, I used to go to open AA meetings seven days a week and Al-Anon meetings every time I could get to one. And as, one time I was in an AA meeting, it was an open meeting, I'm an Al-Anoner, but they let me in. I said, if there is a God and I could find him, one of us would have to die. They weren't scared. It didn't matter what I said. They had seen, they'd seen so much. And over time, uh, I finally started getting the idea of Al-Anon was all about me. And one of the great gifts of Al-Anon was a concept that I, too, am intoxicated. I can get drunk on a relationship. I can get drunk on being a rescuer. I can be drunk without taking a drink. I needed to detox just as much as... She needed to detox. And I didn't know how to do that, but I stumbled across a thing where in Courage to Change, there's, there are readings with page numbers, and one of those is on detachment. And I started doing the readings on detachment, and I would only do three readings, and I would try to live them for one week. Then I would take the next three readings, and I would try to live those for one week. And I kept doing that as I went through. It took take about six weeks to get through detachment. But I want you to know, I started living what I was reading, and it didn't matter that inside I was still kind of crazy. It started making me see life different. Then after I had finished with detachment, I was detoxing is what I was doing. I, I looked at boundaries. Only two readings increased the change on boundaries. But I practiced them that week. And I literally set boundaries, and I behaved accordingly. And then the third reading that I went for was on the topic of expectations. And expectation for me became a guaranteed mismatch with reality. 
It never panned out to be quite the way I thought it was going to be. So I read the expectations three at a time, and, and I had somebody go through this with me. I wasn't doing it by myself. I had a partner. If you leave me by myself, I end up where I'm at. And I needed somebody that would say, let, let me talk to you about this. And then after I had gone through detachment, boundaries, and expectations, the last reading was acceptance. And I went through it the exact same way. During that 90-day window that I did this, my insights for the first time began to change and align with, with principles that worked for Lou. And I had never put the focus on me changing. I always wanted to put the focus on doing what I wanted and everybody else change. So the point that I'm making on was I detoxed, and I didn't know that was possible for a person that didn't have a chemical addiction. But I detoxed. I was as intoxicated with having a codependent person in my life as they were to alcohol. The other thing that happened to me that I'm grateful for, being a failed minister and a failed believer, is there is a thing, step 11. I went to meetings on step 11, and I decided I would try step 11. I didn't have to mean it. I was just going to do it. And so they said, what you want to do? And they gave me some instructions like pause, open up your mind, and then write down what comes to your mind just the way it comes to your mind. And I did that. This one time it was groceries. So I wrote down groceries. And another time it was something else, what to do on the job. But after I did this for a while, it takes me time to get my boat moving in the water. But after I had done this for a while, I started to notice that my thoughts began to sort of align with what I was hearing in these meetings, and I actually began to change my behavior, and I started not just stopping detox, but I started getting a sense of direction in my life. And I have been practicing Step 11 this way for since 2004. And it has made a tremendous difference. For the first time, I think there might be a God that's interested in me. More important than that, I might have found a God I'm interested in. I write this stuff down, and I don't look for yes and no answers. I'm looking for a subtle shift, a sense of direction. Something gives me an idea of which way to try. Not how to land and not how to conquer and not how to be a master, but to be anything that might work. And for me, my experience when, I'm do, when I do meditation and I read this is after I've written it, I let it alone and I go back to it later in the day to see if it still makes sense. And the parts that make sense, I try to use. Um, so I am grateful. That's two of the gifts. Detox was a gift. Step 11 has become a real gift for me. And on notions, over the years, I've gathered some notions that have changed my ironclad mind and my just razor-sharp thinking. And one of the notions is, God, I don't know how to pray, so I'm going to say, please, and would you fill in the blank? And I'm going to say, thank you right now, because if you're filling in the blank, whatever happens is what is supposed to happen. And I started living that thought and practicing it that way, and I quit judging whether life was good, bad, or indifferent. It worked. I also have a, the one that says, I kept trying to figure God out. And what came to me over and over was, Lou, you don't know. You don't know what it takes to know God. And you don't get to know. But you can search and be open to maybe being influenced by something bigger than you. And I said, I'll take that. And I'll be happy to have that. 
Another one is, finally I got to the point with my meditation, I trust my meditation more than I trusted me. It was just my writings, but sometimes they seem to be nudged, and that is still a practice that I have today. Um, And then I'll give you two more and I'll stop. The notion came, trust or not. That's it. You either trust or you don't. And I decided to take my chances. And today, I'm not nearly as unhappy and disgruntled as I was. In fact, I'm actually pretty much at peace. Today, I might have run into a spiritual experience that might be so mild that you wouldn't notice it. But for me, it's as big a thing as I've ever had. I've never had it this good. Finally, the last one is, what do I think God might want me to do right now? Make my best guess. You know, I get some surprising answers. They tend to be where it's not about what I want to do, about maybe what I should do, and maybe how I should do it. And maybe I should talk to somebody called a sponsor and see what do they think about that before I do it. I, for me, the gifts of Alan on have been I'm no longer intoxicated with the relationship. I no longer am alone. I have a practice in step 11 that helps me feel connected. And I have notions that consistently work for me now that, that are easy for me to follow. I'm going to close with this. One of the great gifts of Alan on have also been amends. I told you about my dad. I went to Greenville, and he said, do you want to come in? I started calling my dad every day because he was alone and he was old, and I made a point to call him every day, very seldom days that I ever miss, and my goal was to talk with him for one hour because he was alone. He got where he looked forward to those calls. I found a way to do that for almost 20 years. One day, I said, Dad, I'm really sorry that I was the son that I was. He said, it's okay now, son. That was then. This is now. I got, it. I, I got a father back. I know it doesn't sound like a big deal after all those years, but for me, for the first time, I connected with my dad. And it took, amends was such a gift to me. The other thing is with my mother, I was pretty angry with my mother because she was violent like her dad was violent, and we parted ways. But once I heard the rest of her story, because at that time I didn't know about the beatings that she had taken. I didn't know about her being farmed out into a cotton mill. I didn't know about the early marriages. The more I learned about her, the more I realized it was I judged her all wrong. I just judged her all wrong. And when I went to her grave... I just read my letter. It's all I had left for I could do. I read my letter to her, and I told her, I know I wasn't the son you wanted, but, Mom, I now tell people about the good things that you did, too. And it wasn't just those few times that things got out of hand. She was not a bad mom. She was doing the best she could. I was struggling as a kid, and she just she had her problems. So I'm pretty much at peace with my mom. Um, I had a friend that was my best friend. We worked in probably six or eight companies together. His name was Estel. And 
he ended up with a brain tumor, and he and I had parted ways, bad, bad mojo between us. I parted ways with him. And in his last days, he wanted to know if I'd come visit him. And I did. And this was uh, probably a year, year or so ago. And I went to see him. And he couldn't talk anymore because the tumor in his brain had just scrambled his ability to talk. But he could hear and think and understand. And nobody was able to do anything for him. The doctors just said it's a matter of time until he dies with it. And so I didn't know what I could do. But I went to him and I said, Essel, all I know to do is meditate here with you, but I'll meditate out loud if you want to sit there across from me. And you can try meditating too. And we would sit there face to face, our knees this far apart in chairs, and I would try to do the meditation I would normally write out, I just said out loud. And I just did this, and we would last for maybe 20, 30 minutes. Like all those years of practicing meditation for me, I had a chance to share, because I didn't know what else to share. And he would calm down, he would just relax, he would almost be able to enjoy the moment. And I got a chance to do that with him for about three or four weeks in a row. I'd drive up to Johnson City. It's only three or four hours up the most. And we did this right up until he died. That was an amends. I didn't have unfinished business with him. I don't have unfinished business with my mother. I don't have unfinished business with my father. I don't have unfinished business with the church. I don't even have unfinished business with me. Al-Anon has done so much for me because you stayed steady. You let me hang around with the herd. When I was a kid, I lived on the dairy farm, cow tail and all. And one thing I knew was when those cows would go out in the morning and they'd go off to this pasture or that pasture, it's a big place, if you stayed with the herd, at the end of the day, you'll always make it back home because the cows come home to be milked at the end of every day and they go out every morning to feed. Al-Anon has become my herd. I go to meetings. I need you. You do things for me that I can count on. And I, I, I trust that, that as I go, I will continue to change. The last thing I'll say is, is this. Uh, is when it comes down to religion, one day in meditation, it dawned on me, just one of those moments when it stuck, the thought came, you know, Lou, you don't know anything about religion. But there might be 800 ways to run into God. I thought, wow, all those choices. And when the thought came to me, no, Lou, it's not choices. Would you take the one I offer? I said, yeah, I'll take whatever you offer. I don't want to be alone anymore. I don't need to be on my own anymore. And I have counted on that guidance for a very long time now. When I was about in Minnesota, about eight years old, they had a show called Captain Kangaroo. Familiar with it? I don't remember much anything about it, but I remember one show. The kids were there, and Captain Kangaroo was there, and he gave them this big board with paper on it, and he gave all these little kids magic markers and said, go up and draw stuff on that big old piece of paper. And they did, and they made a mess out of it. It was scribblies this. You know how six, eight-year-old kids are. And 
Way over on the side over here, there was a guy sitting, an old codger, probably 25, 30 years old, and he was, he was sitting over here. And after the kids had made their scribble marks and made a mess, he had them, Captain Kangaroo had all of them sit down, and this guy got up, and he grabbed up a couple of markers, and he went down to one end, and he looked at it. He went to the other end, and he looked at it. Then walked up. That, that artist started adding to the picture. Didn't take anything away. He started adding, and the next thing you know, I could see a trail beginning to come show up, and some trees kind of began to come out of all the scribble marks, and suddenly there was a sky up here, and there was a... He turned that mess of scribbles that made no sense to anyone into a functioning, usable picture. And I kind of think that is what might be happening in my life. All that mess I just told you, that is scribbles. But somehow, maybe, maybe a god can help that become usable. Maybe the 800 ways can be part of my experience if I take the one that I'm offered. I've stayed in, I've stayed in Al-Anon because I'm with the herd. I'm not going anywhere. Okayness, I don't have highs, I don't want lows. Okayness is good for me. I'm solid, I like that. And when it comes down to the deal that I'm cutting with God, no renegotiation needed. I'm at yes, what's the question? Now, I may groan and mumble and groan, you know, about it, but I am not going to fight, but just a little while and then I collapse. I'm saying, I cannot afford to do this by myself. I need someone who can draw me a picture and have me in the picture and that picture work. So it seems that this is as good as it gets for me. No renegotiation desired. Uh, I'm glad I married an alcoholic. She made a great wife. She's sober. I'm looking forward to a countdown. Want to see how many years she's got? I always wonder. And I'm always happy to see her stand up. But it's her life, and I have to live mine. And I'm, 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 glad, it has worked. I'm glad it has worked as well as it has. So that's my story. I tried not to turn it into anything that it wasn't. Um, Thank you for letting me be here, and I look forward to seeing you on the road to happy destiny.